You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Benjamin Hall from Dreamloud Studio. Ben, we're doing part two of your, your magnum opus here, the, the deepest of dives into bass recording. One podcast wasn't enough. It couldn't contain it. It couldn't contain it. Kudos to us for not, not forcing it. Yeah. It was late at night. We decided let's leave it for another day. And today I just spent a couple of minutes listening to some of these tracks you've been getting. And uh, yeah, man, I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to hear about your process, actually, your shootout process. Yeah, and I'm going... So last time on the podcast, we talked about how to dial in an awesome bass tone that you're happy with. And on this episode, we're going to go to the next stage. So now that you've already dialed in your tone... We're going to teach you how to at least give you the tools and how to go about experimenting with capturing that tone that you have and getting it onto a recording. Because, you know, as you know, Vadim, it's one thing to get a tone. It's another thing to capture a tone. Yeah, although your process here, I mean, in the last episode, you, you focused a lot on the elements of tone, like where tone comes from. But I'm sure you'll talk about it here. It seems like your process was actually a lot of the kind of quote unquote dialing in was done through this process because you were working with, well, we'll get into it. You're working with DIs and different like amp combinations and stuff like that, right? Or, or did you actually do, I guess you didn't really talk a lot about the process you used to, to dial in these tones. No, I didn't actually. And that that's a really good question. So I guess I would recommend to people out there if... You don't have a ton of experience recording or capturing bass tone. It's in some ways a good idea to, uh, I mean, go ahead and use your ears. This is kind of the process that I used, but I just kind of set up my bass rig and EQ'd everything to what I thought sounded good in the room. And then I recorded everything so I could take maybe a more objective listen to what things sound like coming through my nice professional studio monitors because it doesn't sound exactly the same listening in right. a, in a room does. where it's loud versus a more controlled environment where you've already captured it and maybe it's been colored by uh, the direct out of your amp head or the microphones that you put on your uh, bass cab. They, they all have a coloring effect, so it might it definitely will sound different than it does to you in the room. Sure, sure. I mean, the mics are in a different position than your ears and so on. But maybe just just say that, just touch on that quickly. Like even when you're, let's say you're in your room or let's say you're at a gig, talk about your process for dialing in the settings on your head. Like mm. where do you start, right? You have like an EQ section. You We talked about this a little bit. You have a gain section. You have all this different stuff. Do you have a fixed process of like, I always start with the bass knob yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is where our science nerdiness is going to come out and where uh, I kind of take... It's already come out, man. Oh, we're, yeah, we're 30, 30 some episodes that's in. That's true, it's, that's true. The, the cat is out of the bag. <laughs> but I kind of take a scientific method approach to this stuff. And the whole idea behind it is you're eliminating all the variables that you only want to be changing one thing at a time whenever you're analyzing tone and figuring out what you like or or how changing one thing affects your overall tone. So what that might mean is don't change the bass position on the EQ of your bass guitar and then also change how much distortion you're applying with a pedal and then also change something else on your head all at the same time. You're You're changing three things at once. You only want to be changing one thing at a time and then seeing how right. everything in in your pedal chain and your tone chain reacts to that. So, yeah, I'll just talk through real quickly what I do. Um, first, I'll, I'll re really just literally plug my bass straight into the amp because I don't want anything else affecting it. Um, and we'll, we'll only have the controls on the bass and the controls on the amp to, to worry about it first. So 
I'll plug that in and I'll keep, if there's any kind of EQ, uh, which on my bass head, there's two different EQ sections. There's a nine band graphic equalizer, but there's also a three band, just passive knob turning EQ. And I don't use the nine band. It's a little bit too, it's too overly complicated. I mean, it's nice that you can, I guess, fine tune and dial in, but I feel like it's a little bit maybe too picky for. Do you know which one comes first, like in the signal path? Does your That's does a the good signal question. pass? I think th- yeah. I think the three band comes first, and then th- I would think the so, nine yeah. band. But there's a nice switch on my amp where you can bypass it, so I just always leave it bypassed. I noticed that in your picture, yeah, because you posted a picture on Instagram of your amp head, and I was I talk about nerdiness. I zoomed in as far <laughs> as I could, and I was looking at all the things, and I noticed that you have that EQ uh, bypassed, so, okay. I had messed around with it before, so I think a good scenario to use something like that is uh, if you're a bass player that switches between fingerstyle and pick style, um, you might mm. want to have, because it comes with a pedal so that you can engage that EQ and turn it off, so that might be cool. a nice thing to have if you're doing something technique-wise that's drastically different and and it changes the tone too much and you maybe you want to switch things up a bit. So I think that would be a perfect application for that kind of a thing. But most of the time, I just want to keep yep. my settings the same. Okay, so you got that. They got that EQ bypassed. So you start where you start on the three band. I EQ. start with everything at 12 o'clock. And okay, so yeah, yep. start there first. And then I'll turn up the, the preamp gain to a, a low or a moderate level. And then obviously I have to turn up the master uh, output as well. And I think the way that it works in my amp is the, the preamp is controlled. It's like the preamp gain stage that also has five tubes associated with it. And then the main output is the, the output gain stage, which has another five tubes that power that. So I like to try to keep those things equal and level like you can crank up your your pre-gain and get a whole bunch of analog distortion and then just keep the main output pretty quiet but i think it's more designed they're designed more to work in tandem i think they sound the best that way yeah yeah so if you if you listen to the two guitar episodes you would have heard this this will be a bit of a recap but the way these amps work is you have a you're sending an instrument level signal which is a really quiet signal into your amp the amp then has multiple stages. First is the preamp stage. The preamp stage bumps you up from instrument level signal up to like we'll call it a medium strength signal, which is a line level signal. Then it sounds like in your amp you go through so yeah that then then that that preamp uh gain is controlled by a gain knob, mm-hmm. which if you crank it will provide distortion. It'll cause that circuit to break up. Uh then that signal is routed to the three band EQ, which is like Kind of like an EQ in your car. It's bass, mid, treble, yep. typically, right? Yep. <laughs> then you go through, it sounds like on your amp, then you go through another EQ stage. Yeah. The nine-band uh, EQ, which is j- just another fine-tuning tool. And then you go to the power amp stage. The power amp is taking that line-level signal and bumping it up to the strongest-level signal, which is a speaker-level signal. And speaker-level signal is actually a strong enough signal to physically move a speaker in your cabinet. Well said, exactly. And so when I'm moving that preamp and and power amp knobs, I'm moving them kind of so that they, they look similar, like I'm turning them both at the same time. And I'll sometimes fine-tune adjust that if I want more breakup. But like on a bass guitar, I, I really want more grit. I don't want it to be distorting or breaking up so much. Right. And so if you're listening and you're like, well, what's the difference between the two? Usually the difference is that uh, the preamp circuit, the gain knob is designed, like on a pedal, it's designed to provide some distortion and some grit, whereas the master level will typically stay clean longer. Hmm. Uh, so you can, boost your, you can boost your overall volume without increasing distortion. Although if you, bo- if you crank the master level enough, you will distort the power amp section, which actually can sound really sweet on guitars, but probably you don't want that on bass, I'm guessing. I mean, it's so unbelievably loud, and I would be worried about... Y- yeah, you got a 900-watt yeah. amp. Like, you're, not, you're never touching that. Ma- that master knob is, uh, is, a, is a weapon. Oh, yeah. On your amp. Yeah. So, so that's like 
kind of the starting point. And then okay. from there, the next thing I'll adjust whenever I'm going for tone is the EQ on my bass guitar itself. And okay. on my Music Man Stingray, there is a three-band EQ. It's treble, mid, and bass. And for a long time, I was cutting the mids, scooping them to about 50%, at least uh, from the the knob position because there's kind of a notch right at that 50% mark. And for a long time I was doing that just because I, I naturally like the sound of that scooped mid-range and I don't know where that mid-range kind of sits, like where it's actually mm -hmm. cutting out. I've never really done that research or experimentation to see what it's actually doing to my tone, but I just audibly like the way that it sounds. So yep. you can play around with that and just do whatever sounds good to your ear. I don't do that anymore because I want, especially when I'm recording, I want as much tone that the pickups can pick up going through. So I leave everything maxed out nowadays. You have passive pickups on that? It's basically? an active, active pickup. Active? Yeah. And you, you crank everything to 10? I crank everything to 10. Yeah. Okay. So you're actually boosting the signal through your, through those, through that active pickup. It's one pickup. Yeah. Yeah. One humbucker, right? Yeah. Yep. And I leave my okay. I leave my volume maxed too. And I, I don't know if this is a little bit different for guitar players, but I recommend to bass players they always keep their volume maxed out. And the only reason you wouldn't is if you're overloading like um an input on an interface or something like that. because uh, sometimes those active basses have a lot of output. Yes. I was gonna that's a great point. And the other point is if you have for some reason, if your like preamp circuit and your if you have an active pickup, I mentioned this on the guitar episode as well. It means that you basically have a little preamp circuit in your in your guitar or bass in this case. And if depending on that circuit, if you could you you might be able to actually overload that circuit and actually get distortion coming right out of the bass, which you probably don't want. So I agree with you with active pickups, you may need to be a little more careful. If you have passive pickups, meaning there's no battery inside. You definitely want to keep it, your volume on 10 because on passive pickups, you can't add anything because there's no power source. Mm. You can only take stuff away with your knobs. Yeah. So you don't want to take anything away. And uh, there you definitely want to keep everything on 10. But you do that with active pickups as well. So that's that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then the next thing, if I like the way the tone is sounding so far or I've adjusted things, um, then I'll move on to the EQ on the amp itself and I'll play around with that. And as you can see from the picture I posted on our uh, community page and on Instagram, I'm cutting the mids again just a little bit yep. and I'm boosting the bass and the treble just a tiny bit. Not a lot, but just a tiny bit. And I just naturally like the sound of that mid scoop a little bit, it kind of helps. And I think it's probably acting somewhere between 200 and 500 Hertz. It's cutting out mm. some of that in, in the bass, and that can just be kind of a overly honky frequency. And I know we had some questions in the Facebook community, and we'll touch on those later, like what are good frequencies to keep in bass and what are ones you can get rid of. So uh, stay tuned yep. for that. We'll definitely cover that. So cool. that's kind of what I tend to do. And it's funny in some situations when I've recorded people, you'll see sometimes bass players playing through and... Uh, a graphic EQ or something like that. And uh, sometimes if I'm just curious and I'm taking a look at it, you'll see that they're boosting all the mid frequencies on their graphic EQ and then on their amp, they're cutting them all away again. And I, uh, yeah. I think that's funny to me. Now, not to say that there isn't a legitimate reason for doing that in some situations, but I like to just start, when I'm dialing in a tone, I like to start in a neutral position for everything and then just kind of tweak the tone little bit by little bit so you don't get in those situations where you were taking things away and didn't realize it and then you're trying to add them back later like you're you're kind of defeating the purpose yeah. of uh your eq moves and stuff and exactly yeah and that's really important though so let's say let's say hypothetically on my bass i wanted to cut out all the mid-range and then i wasn't happy with that and so on my amp i wanted to add it all back I don't think that's going to work as well as just keeping everything in a neutral position because you're essentially not getting any mid-range frequencies out of your bass 
So the amp has nothing, no good tone to work to with anymore. Yeah. You're essentially all you would be doing is just boosting dead air. It's not going to sound as good. Or noise. Or noise, yeah. Even worse, you might be boosting noise. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is where, again, if you're listening to this episode, you you maybe are a bass player, you maybe didn't listen to the guitar episode, but the, what, what I use there is like, we are theoretically speaking, we want to do as minimal processing as we can. So like, if I could get the exact sound I wanted out of my guitar or bass without any amplifier, like I would, why wouldn't I, right? Yeah. So with that mindset, I really like what you're doing because you're eff you're effectively saying like, I'm going to take the EQ sections of the amplifier completely out of it and just see how close I can get to my ideal tone using what's on the bass already. Because that means I have as good a signal as I can have coming out of my instrument. And then you'll fine tune that with the bass, which makes total sense to me in the concept of our, you know, we always talk about the tone pyramid and starting with the bass. Mm -hmm. That's starting with... <laughs> No pun intended, yeah. starting with the bass, uh, starting at the source and working your way down the signal chain. So awesome. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you cleared that up. And um, I was always wondering how people did it on bass. It sounds like it's a relatively similar process to uh, guitars, except on guitars, we want everything on 10 all the time. <laughs> or 11 <laughs> if it exists. If yeah, if you got an 11, then then, sure. then even better. Okay. All right. Cool. So you got your tone dialed in. Yeah. Where do you go next? Um, so if you have a, now and a lot of times I'm playing in more hard rock or metal genres. And for that, like you absolutely want distortion on your bass. It just helps to cut through. It sounds cool. So, uh, I have my dark glass B7K on pretty much all the time. That's part of my tone. So that's the next thing that I would do. I would I would plug my bass in through that pedal, which has its own preamp um, and gain stage, and then send that out to my amp. Now it also has a four band EQ on that pedal, so I will play around with the EQ a little bit because the tone changes a little bit going through that circuit. So once again, it's the same rinse and repeat like we talked about with dialing in the tone on the bass and the amp itself. Now I'm just adding another another piece into the chain. Now. I tend to add a little bit of gain with the pedal itself, so I'm boosting just slightly, maybe five decibels max, but but not not that much. Like I'm I'm just adding a little bit of boost, just in case I ever I ever want to take that pedal off. I want it to be quieter, like for a quiet section of the song. But you can, I wouldn't want to be uh, taking a, away volume or adding too much. I would probably want it to be at a similar level to no pedal in the chain. So that's that's just something I I personally like to do, but um, it's good to be aware that, you know, that's a decision you have to make. Like I don't, I wouldn't want to be boosting and adding a ton of tone with distortion. One thing I wanted to talk about is when capturing a bass tone, how does this differ from capturing a, a, a guitar tone? Because they are really similar, but there's a couple things that are, are different. So I have this little checklist real quick. Let's talk about ways that recording an electric bass is similar to recording a guitar. So first thing is it's it's always a good idea to capture a DI track. And this is for multiple reasons. Um, the first one is just in case something goes horribly wrong, if you're miking up a cab and for some reason the mics just don't sound good, or I had this happen before where... Um, the amp got too loud and it was the grill was actually touching the microphone so all my tracks were ruined oh, yeah yeah wow. so that that was a sad day um but i had a i had a bass di so i was able to salvage those tracks so it's just so so the di explain how you get how do you get a bass di because i'm thinking like okay i plug my you just say i plug my bass into my pedal i plug that into my amp where's the di coming from i like to put the the DI is the very next thing in the chain right after my bass. So my instrument cable plugs into my bass and that goes right into a DI box. And that has okay. a parallel out. And that one parallel out I'll send directly to my interface. And the other one goes to the first pedal in my chain. Right. So a DI, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, you can think of it in this context as a, sig as a signal splitter. Yeah. You're taking one signal and you're splitting it into two different directions. 
and one of those directions goes directly into your interface, so you're recording the raw tone off the instrument, and the other one goes through the signal chain that Ben just described. Okay, exactly. Cool. Uh, other ways that recording bass is similar to guitar. Um, the tech, I would say, now this is a miking thing, but the techniques for miking a speaker cab are they're essentially the same. Like this, the same process I would and miking techniques I would use for guitar I would do on bass. So there's nothing special there. <laughs> most of the time, I say most of the time, you'll want to record with new or fresh strings. I say most of the time because there's this famous bass player, James Jamerson, who played on all the Motown records, and he famously never, ever changed his strings. <laughs> really? Yeah. But for that Motown sound, you don't need any high end in the bass. It's all sub. So mm. if you're playing that style, you don't need new strings as much but if you're playing more aggressive styles absolutely uh and the signal chain is mostly the same for recording bass and guitar now let's jump and talk about how they're different um okay so i would argue that it's helpful to have a guitar di just in case you want to reamp or use plugins but i would say for recording bass uh a bass DI is not only a good idea, but it's essential to the tone. Mm. And we'll get into more of that later, but sometimes you can't get a good, clean low end without having a bass DI. So I would say never leave home without your DI box <laughs> if you're going to record somewhere. Yeah. The post-processing on a recorded track is different on bass than it is uh, for guitar in comparison. I feel like, so this is just me talking as a mixing engineer. Mixing guitars is pretty straightforward, but on bass, I do a lot of different stuff. It is a lot more heavy-handed, and... Yes, agree. I'm just curious. Okay, I was going to ask you. I do, yeah, I, inevitably, whatever I end up doing for bass, I end up having a ton of processing and all kinds of crazy stuff, whereas for guitars, it's usually just EQ. Yeah, interesting. And I think maybe the reason behind that is is that you're already what just the distortion, you're processing the guitar so heavily. You're pummeling it, yeah. Yeah, that like it really doesn't at least dynamically it doesn't need too much more. But we'll we'll talk about right, absolutely. we'll talk more about that later. We talked about this a little bit on the last episode. Uh so compression when recording guitar is maybe something to consider and think about, especially if your tone is really clean, but it's really a necessity when you're recording bass. And this doesn't even have to be on your on your bass signal chain. It can be after the fact. So in just the example we gave with capturing a DI um, on our bass that we're you know recording, uh, there's not a compressor pedal in my signal chain. I'm just using a plugin after the fact to help control that DI. But nevertheless, I am gonna put a lot of compression on that. Do you, you don't use a compressor, a compressor in your chain at all? Does the dark glass pedal have compression on it? No, I do use a compressor, but that comes after where the signal splits for the DI. Oh, I see, yeah, the DI is uncompressed. Yeah, yeah understood. Yeah, I want, okay. I want the DI to be uncompressed because um, even the, I have the Supersymmetry by Dark Glass, and that's a pretty transparent pedal, but any compressor is going to color your tone a little bit, and I want a completely yeah, uncolored absolutely. tone Gotcha. for my DI. I think the last thing I would say, and I'm sure you'll agree with me being a guitar player, but even as a bass player, I would say that, um, and this is kind of referring back to episode 13 where you talked about dialing in guitar tone, and you talked about how so much of guitar tone is genre specific and and the guitar tone itself defines the genre that you're playing in whereas with bass i'm more looking to find a tone that fits and suits the song mm. more so than finding a genre defining defining bass tone and I, see. I think that's really important for bass players to think about because bass players like drummers a lot of the times we kind of get stuck in our own little world and we're searching for the greatest, most amazing bass tone that we can have. But I can't tell you the, sh the amount of shows that I've gone to, even with like professional bands where the 
bass player was just annoying because the tone just, <laughs> it didn't, it either was too loud or the tone itself was kind of ear splitting and it didn't sound like the band was playing together. You know what I mean? Have you experienced that before? I do, but absolutely. But I've always, not always, but I usually assumed that that was an acoustics issue. Because like I, I go to a lot of shows at small, or I used to, I don't go to shows at all anymore, yeah. but I used to go to a lot of shows at smaller venues in Philly. And in particular, there's one band I love called Moontooth. I don't know if you heard of them. I have They're out of New York. They're great. And... um. I was at I was at their show and like some of my friends were at the show as well. I was with my wife and I was kind of like in the middle of the venue. And they came on and like all I could hear was bass. It was drowning everything out and I was like, "Man, yeah. This sucks." But then later, I was talking to my friend who was at the same show up way up front near the stage, and I was like, "Dude, all I could hear was bass." And he was like, "What? No, it sounded great where I was." Oh. So now I'm thinking, "Okay, it's a really long venue." The, the guy doing the sound is all the way in, against the back wall. I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, there's just too much stuff going on. And we talked about with Yesco how, like, bass frequency... Anyway, so long story short, I have experienced exactly what you're talking about, but sometimes I assume that's because of an acoustics issue, not because the bass player is, like, stuck in his own world. Although I'll happily, uh, I'll happily go with that theory. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm thinking of is I saw one band in particular, and they were a metal band, but they had a really interesting sound where... The rhythm guitarist was playing a Les Paul, and he had a more classic rock tone, like a hard rock tone, okay. but it was... Yeah. I mean, you can imagine the tone in your head. It's a Les Paul. It's smooth. It's buttery and classic sounding, and the bass player was playing the most high-gain distortion aggressive over-the-top treble bite-your-head-off type of tone, and it just didn't, it just didn't sound like they fit together, and so... Uh, I think whenever you're picking a tone, don't just go for in isolation or solo what type of bass tone you like as a bass player, but try to find a tone that fits and suits the song. So um, this tone that we're going to listen to later in the episode was specifically formulated. Now it still sounds like me, it's my rig, but I changed my settings a lot and adjusted things to fit what I thought sounded best in the song. Yeah, great point. Let's talk about the role of bass guitar in a song, in a mix, um, maybe before we get into recording. So I have five main things here that um, the bass guitar does. So most of the time, this is number one, most of the time it's the solid foundation or the cornerstone of a mix. So think about any song that you listen to on the radio. It doesn't matter the genre or just your favorite songs in general, um, that low end is thick, solid, and consistent pretty much across the board. And so whatever bass tone you wind up with, you want to make sure that not only the tone that you have, but the notes that you're playing are kind of fitting that uh, mold because it's super important. There's nothing else down there that can kind of take the place of that. Yep. Okay, num number two. Um it's a very important rhythm instrument, second only to the drums. And I think a lot of people don't think about this, but bass is kind of, I like to call it the bridge between um, rhythm instruments and melody because you've got that ability to be very percussive on a bass and also play a lot of melodic notes. So in some songs, it's really maybe even doing more of the rhythmic work than even the drums are because the drums will just be keeping mm -hmm. the steady beats, but... The groove is all in the bass itself. So those rhythms are very important. Yep. I'm thinking of like funk music, maybe some R&B, even pop music. The bass is really kind of defining what the rhythm of the song is. Yeah, even I mean, even hip hop, right? A lot of yeah. times you'll have like a re the simplest backbeat on the snare, but like the bass is what really drives the whole groove, like you said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, Punchiness, clarity, and tightness are essential for keeping the rhythm of your song together. And a lot of that is being a good player and knowing the rhythms and just being very specific about how am I playing this groove? Am I, am I playing the right rhythm? Am I stopping the notes at the right time? Am I holding notes too long? Like, 
those are kind of things you need to think about. But not only that, that mm-hmm. it can be your compressor settings too that kind of define the rhythm and the punchiness as well. So you can define or set the release time on your compressor. Um, a fast, a faster release on a compressor means it's punchier. It's letting up. It's more staccato sounding. A slower release can make things sound more legato and smooth. So mm. uh, when you're dialing in a compressor, that's something to think about as well. Uh, number three, I'll say oftentimes, but especially in rock genres, it's the bass guitar is the lower end extension of the guitars. And you did a great example of this on your guitar uh, episode where um, sometimes you might think that a really thick, super deep tone is the guitars, but if you mute the bass to take it away, you realize what you're hearing you thought was guitar was actually bass. Yep, absolutely. You don't have to rely all the time on your guitars to have all that thick low end. A lot of times the bass can can pick up that role as well. Okay, number four. Sometimes the bass can function as part of the guitar tone in a mix. And this is especially true for metal genres. So the two bands that come to mind when I think of tones like this are Periphery and Amur. And Amur in particular, because I saw some deconstruction of one of their songs from their last album, where they put the bass in solo, and I was amazed by how much like high-end, grindy guitar tone distortion they were using in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, mm. like half of the guitar high-end overdrive is in the bass guitar itself, which is kind of a very, it's a very interesting way of going about it, but they're kind of treating the bass guitar as a third lower-tuned guitar in that context, which can be a very cool thing. Um, it can be trickier to figure out, I think, what situations you want to do do that in, but I would say that's more for metal, metal gent, and um, hardcore genres. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever, if you haven't tried to like super distort the top of a bass, you should because you you said it's got it's got a growl that you'll never get with a guitar. And for those heavy genres, it just sounds awesome. And like, yeah, that can be a really desirable thing, especially if what the bass player and the guitar player are playing are like is like pretty locked in together. That'll be a really satisfying sound for sure. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last thing the bass can uh, uh, the bass's role in a mix is it functions as a melodic instrument, and very often it plays an important role in defining chord voicings in a song. So something to think about there. And I spent a lot of time as a bass player whenever I was learning, trying to figure out, okay, what intervals can I go to if I have a standard one, five, six, four chord progression? Um, Instead of just playing the root note all the time, what intervals can I jump to on the bass? Uh, Or what, what can I do and how will that affect how the song feels? And just getting experience with that and knowing what melodically you can do on a bass guitar is really helpful in defining not only your sound, but the sound of uh, maybe the band that you're in or the sound of the recording that you want. Um, Some things that jump to mind are, especially in like reggae rock, if you think of that, um, the bass is pretty much defined around playing root fifth octave. Do, 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 do. That's all root and fifth. And it's... Mm -hmm very defined by the melodic intervals that you're doing on the bass. Like if you try doing something more jazz, like where you're walking up scales and down, it doesn't sound like reggae anymore. So it's very interesting, but those intervals play a big role in that kind of, in that kind of a thing. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So even though, like you said, the, the the guitar tone can define the genre, but the bass notes you're playing the intervals you're playing can define the genre in a sense as well Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting way of thinking of it yeah absolutely and i love that freedom that you can have on bass to kind of play around the chord voicings a little bit where you don't have that on guitar like you're pretty much just you have alternate voicings but you're pretty much playing the chord if you're playing rhythm guitar right right okay so i'm convinced bass is the best instrument (laughs) it's it's a superior instrument uh 
How do you record it? <laughs> let's do. Let's jump into that now. Okay, so the example I have for you today is from an artist uh, named Alyssa, and this is for a new song that she's getting ready to release called "Let Me Out." So I want to just play the chorus of this song. Uh, we'll listen to it, and this is has my bass recorded in it, in context of all the other instruments. So we'll play that right now, and then we can take a listen to it. So, yes, we can hear from that. That's not mixed at all. Those are just the recorded tracks, and it's already sounding pretty good. I'm, I would be pretty happy yeah. with that uh, as far as grabbing tones and stuff goes. Um, so don't be too critical of the ways the drums sound because the drums will be heavily mixed uh, after this phase. Um, but let's talk about how are we going to build a bass tone that goes into this. So the next example I have is just my bass isolated. So let's take a listen to that. Sounds freaking good, man. Oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> Appreciate that. This is the final bass tone that I settled on for this for this recording. And what we're going to talk about is how I built that bass tone and why I decided to do the things that I did. So the first thing that I grabbed and always grab is a DI track. And we talked about how to do this earlier in the episode where... We take a DI and we're basically splitting the signal. So one of the outputs from the DI goes directly to the interface and the other goes into the pedal chain. And with a DI, um, you're getting just the super clean, unobstructed bass tone with that. So there's a couple different things, actually three different things that you can do with a bass DI. And the first thing is you can leave it untouched and just put it into the song, which is not recommended, but sometimes you can get away with that. Why, is it, why isn't this recommended? So a lot of the tone that's imparted into bass that gives a character is the sound of a bass going through an amp and all the transformers and tubes. But not only that, but also uh, how that goes through a speaker cabinet and then the speakers push air and you kind of get that sound of bass moving air and so i would say without that sound of a cabinet moving bass frequencies through air you're not really getting a full bass tone just the di in and of itself it might sound good but it's going to be lacking in maybe the thickness of the low end and just the overall body of the tone if that makes sense now that leads us into the second thing you can do with DI. You can reamp it. You can send it out of your interface and back into a bass amp and then just mic up that bass amp cabinet and capture your performance, but it going through an amp itself. Um, or you could do that. I still call it reamping, but you can send that DI through a amp simulator plugin, which I have some examples of that that we'll go over later. And actually, interesting enough, I noticed this while I was recording, never really thought about it before um, I did this experiment, but when you capture a DI track, you're actually able to capture a lot more bandwidth than you can even from going through some of these plug-in emulations or miking up an amp cabinet because there's a limit to the, the very, very low lows 
that an amp speaker can reproduce and the highest highs. But whenever you look at a DI track, you notice that, wow, I'm reproducing frequencies all the way down to 20 hertz or lower than that, which yep. are not really useful in the context of a mix. But if you want sub bass, it's there in the DI, where sometimes you can't get that from a speaker cabinet. Great point. Okay, so that's the first thing we do. Um, the second thing, and I, th I think this is maybe a little less useful for recording, but this is definitely applicable for live context a lot. So if we were playing live shows, which we don't do anymore, but hopefully they are coming back again soon, uh, a lot of times the front of house guy is going to take uh, the direct out of your bass amp head. And what this does that's different than a DI is uh, you can get all the preamp and EQ settings of your amp head sent directly to the front of house. And then the front of house engineer can do any processing to that to reproduce your tone. Whereas mm. if you just took a DI out of your out of your bass, it's going to be a lot more clean and it's not going to have the harmonic and EQ character that your bass amp head would have. Mm. So you still could capture and record a bass amp head. Um, but I think it's it's more helpful if you're recording a, a record or an album to grab a DI than an amp head. I don't know. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah. I think I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Moving on to mics. So let's talk about miking up a cab. Really, there's no rules to this. I can remember the first time I recorded in a band we put an SM57 on my bass amp cab and it sounded amazing and it captured as much low end as we possibly could have needed. And mm. I, think, I think not knowing about mics too much, I would have thought, oh, I need like a, a big fat microphone to capture a big fat bass amp tone. <laughs> but that's not necessarily true. Um, you can really use whatever you want. You can use a dynamic microphone, you can use a, com a condenser, or a ribbon microphone. And actually probably my favorite combination of mics on a bass is a Shure Beta 52 along with a Royer 121 ribbon microphone. Cause I, I just really love the way that a Royer captures the finger style articulation of the high end. Mm. Yeah, that's an inch. So that B52 is, is basically like, uh, it's a dynamic microphone that is commonly used for kick drums, I believe as well, right? Yep. So cool. Let's, yeah, that's the very next thing. Let's determine the position where we want to put the mics in relation to the speakers on the cabinet. This is just my method of going about it. And I'm curious to hear, Vadim, you can chime in with any critiques that you have because I'm curious how you mic up a cab as well. But essentially, what I do is I'm just going to start with whatever mic I have. And in this situation, I started with my Beta 52. And the first thing that I wanted to do is. On my bass amp cab, I have five speakers. I have one 15 inch in the middle and then four tens that are on each corner around that 15 mm. inch. It's a really interesting combination. Um, but the first thing you wanna do is mic up in a consistent location each of those speakers. So I just pick the center position right on top of the, the speaker grill. So as close to the speaker as I possibly could be. And I just played the same bass line and I put that Beta 52 in the center of each of those speakers because surprisingly, uh, each speaker is going to sound different than the other. So you want to find the best sounding speaker in your rig. So including the 15 inch, you're, you're doing the 15 inch and then each of the tens as well? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I actually have examples of all of those if we want to play them right now. Yeah, let's do it. So this is the Beta 52 in the center of the 15 inch. Next we'll show what the Beta 52 sounds like in front of the top left 10 inch speaker in my cabinet. Now the next one is 12, and that one is 
what the Beta 52 sounds like in the top right 10-inch speaker. And then we'll do this for the remaining two speakers. So number 13 is the Beta 52 in the center of the bottom left 10-inch speaker. And 14 is the Beta 52 in the center of the bottom right 10-inch speaker. Okay, so now let's 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 just do them. Um, let's listen to them back to back to back. So we're gonna do uh, was it fifteen inch, and then each one of uh, the corner speakers yes. and just see what you think. So I'll I'll just put them in back to back here. Cool. I think the best sounding speaker is the 15 inch, which kind of surprised me because I thought I would have preferred 10 inch speakers because I really kind of don't like the super subby woofy sound of a bass, but I just think that for whatever reason, that 15 inch speaker is a really good speaker and it reproduced the tone really well. So that was the first thing that um, I determined was I liked that Beta 52 on the 15 inch speaker the most. And then the other things to, to pick away from that as well is that my favorite 10-inch speaker was the top right one. And it was very apparent that the, the speakers on top, I feel like had a more balanced overall EQ than the speakers on the bottom of the cabinet. Dude, that's, that's, I just wanted to say that's so interesting because I listened through all of these tracks without knowing what each one was and i spiked out the ones that i thought sounded the best and the two i spiked out two of the ones i spiked out was the beta 52 on the 10 inch top right center and that same speaker with the 57 so i totally agree with you interesting <laughs> that was the one that you liked the most well i just just spiking out the ones that i that i thought sounded good mm. i picked like you know four or five but interestingly enough two of the ones i see that i spiked out are both the different mics on that 10 inch right speaker so it's interesting that we both kind of came to that conclusion and it's it's not an exact science as to determining why but to me that just sounded like it reproduced that tone the best out of all of them yeah, that, that's that's what I would say. And I mean, you could as a listener, you might disagree with me and that's fine. But um, it's important to understand why you're making the decisions that you're making. So what I'm talking through here, uh, the way to apply this to your own rig is not saying, OK, the top right speaker always sounds the best. No, right. right, yeah. right. The way what I'm showing you is, is like it is kind of a, a really tedious process, but to find the best tone, you really do. If you have multiple speakers in a cabinet, unfortunately for you, um, eight by ten Ampeg users, you really, <laughs> you really do have to mic up every speaker to find the best sounding speaker because they don't all sound the same. Yes, and it's it's worth it's an exercise worth doing. And you were I like how methodical you were because you said, okay, I'm going to pick, let's say, the center position. Even though you may not settle on the center position, you did that so that you could have an apples to apples comparison between all the speakers. And then this is going to take you, you know, maybe an hour to do this test, but then you'll know, hey, on this cabinet, I really like the sound of this one speaker. And now you can go from there, right? You've, you've played with only one variable, yes. which is what speaker am I using? And then you make a decision from there. So yeah, it's not always the top right inch one, the top hand right one, but if you have multiple speakers, try all of them, see which one you think sounds best. Yeah. So we won't. I won't force you to listen through um, this whole exercise, <laughs> but for the 15 inch, um, you don't have to force me, man. I want to do yeah. that, but but go on. For our <laughs> listeners' sake, um, yeah, you don't have to listen to all the ex examples, but I did do the experiment of trying 
three different positions with the Beta 52 on that 15-inch speaker, which was okay. center position, edge of the dust cap, and edge of the speaker. And I wound up liking how it sounded on the center as well. So I just stayed with that position. Um, I, I do think it's worth playing them back to back to yeah, back. Let's, let's go ahead. Just do, um, so you said it's it's the center, the edge of the dust cap, and what's the third position? Edge of the speaker. Edge of the speaker. So like outside, the outside edge of the speaker. Yeah. Okay, let's just play those back to back to back. Uh, so first with the center, then the edge of the dust cap. So we're basically, if you picture the speaker as a, it's a circle, right? We're starting at the center and we're moving out from the center. So the first thing you'll hear is directly on, on center. The next thing is the edge of the dust cap, which is kind of like if you look at your speaker, you have the little dust cap circle in the middle, the small circle inside the big circle. We're right at the outer edge of that small circle. And then the third one you'll hear is the outer edge of the big 15-inch speaker. Yes. The, the outer edge of the speaker itself. So here's those back-to-back. And in general, what I've found is that the farther out you move from the center of the speaker, the more sub-frequencies you get and the less definition from the top end, just in general. So even if you're listening to this and saying, ooh, I like the sound of that microphone on the edge of the speaker because it sounds so subby, I love that. I didn't like that because I felt that the EQ balance was off for the tone I was going for. I want the so the bass frequencies in the low end to kind of match up with what's happening in the high end as well. So Yeah, you don't want a big volume imbalance across the frequency yeah. spectrum. And the way I like to picture it in, in my head is I, I look I picture the speaker and I pick I like to think of it in terms of bright and dark. So I picture the center of the speaker as like really bright I picture that as like picture white the color white and then as you're going to the outer edges of the speaker it gets darker 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 grayer 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 and then black all the way at the outside and so you can think of that as like how bright the tone is versus how dark the tone is and that's true for guitars as well so if your tone sounds just too bright too crispy at the top moving that speaker towards the outer edge a little bit will help to darken it. So it's almost like an EQ. Yeah, exactly. You're using the microphone essentially to impart an EQ onto your tone without using any EQ. Yes. And in fact, it's better to do it that way, I would argue, because you're not introducing weird phase issues and things like that um, from EQing on the back end. Yes. Now, I think the thing we said still applies where like, if you have EQ on your bass, you want to set that right first. Right. Next, you want to set the EQ on your amp. But then when you're when you're finally happy with that tone, when you're adjusting the mic, you're right. I totally agree. I would much rather get the sound I want by adjusting the mic placement than by like saying, oh, I'll just EQ it later with a plug-in, right? Right, exactly. Okay, cool. So some of you people out there might be saying, wait, there's one more uh, dimension we haven't talked about yet. And so I do want to mention this, even though it's not in my experiment. But you can also okay. play with the depth. So, well, yeah, you didn't you didn't say this actually in you, in these tests you're doing. How far away from the grill is the microphone? Exactly. So for consistency's sake, I was keeping the microphone right off the grill, like as close to the grill as possible, as close to the speaker. Gotcha. And I didn't vary away from that really at all because I knew the farther off you get from the speaker, the less articulation you get. And I was happy with the tone, so I didn't feel the need to kind of mess around with that anymore. All right, cool. So um, the other thing that I did here too, and now I will say with the caveat of just capturing a bass cab with one microphone, like that is, that is really plenty. But I always like to add another microphone whenever I'm recording, <laughs> yeah. just to kind of see what yeah. happens and compare and contrast. Sure. Um, and in this situation, I added a sure SM57, and I put it on the top right speaker. And my idea with the good one, yeah, the good one. And <laughs> my idea with doing this was okay, so I'm getting, I'm capturing the main tone from the Beta 52, and it sounds really good. It's a deep, rich tone, 
but maybe with the 57, I can capture some more high-end and finger articulation and maybe more of the distortion characteristics with that microphone and blend it in. So that was kind of my whole idea with adding that microphone and putting it on the top right speaker in comparison to maybe also putting it on the same speaker as the 52 is on. And then that makes perfect sense because if you think about even like your studio monitors, right? You have a tweeter and a woofer and the woofer is, is, is a bigger speaker and it represents lower frequencies. The tweeter is a smaller speaker and it represents, it does a better job representing higher frequencies. And you're kind of using that same concept of saying like, well, 10 inch speaker is smaller. It's going to be easier for that speaker to vibrate fast and capture yeah. or represent high frequencies. So you're kind of using, yeah, it's a really good approach actually, Ben. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks. Um, and we can show those examples of how I mic'd it up if you sure. want to as well. We can just rapid fire go through them here. So essentially I did the same exact thing with the Shure SM57 as I did with the 52. Um, so I tried placing it straight on to the center of the speaker. I tried the edge of the dust cap and then I tried a 40 degree angle uh, in relation to perpendicular to the speaker cabinet itself. And I like doing this trick a lot on guitars. So I tried just a different angle, but in that same edge of the dust cap position. And then the final example was far edge of the speaker. And I just compared all those tones together. Dead center, then you have edge of the dust cap, then you have edge of the dust cap, but rotated towards the center. Yes. And then finally the edge of the speaker. Yep. Perfect. Okay, cool. Let's, let's listen to that. Which one did you like most there? The one I liked the most and wound up going with was uh, edge of the dust cap, straight on, not the angled straight one. Straight on, yeah. Because okay. I thought, Interesting. I thought okay. the angled one just, it thinned out the tone too much for me. So, okay, cool. So we've got our two mic tracks, and um, now we could start talking about putting it all together. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. So we have a DI track, and the main thing that I like to do, and... This is a testament to how far amp simulation has gotten in the recent years where it sounds mm -hmm. so good. The technology that they're using to capture impulse responses and just reproduce what's going on in these amps is pretty gnarly and incredible. And in fact, like, let's just jump to that example. So okay. first, let's just start with my bass DI so everybody can hear what just the plain... A plain good bass DI sounds like. That's O2. All right, here's the DI. That is uh, what just an unaffected clean bass DI sounds like. And then the very next number, O3, is... Um, the bass DI going through the Neural DSP Dark Glass Ultra plugin. That's through the plugin, and I have both the plugin and the cab simulator engaged on that. So as you can hear, that tone already sounds really good. So I decided after listening to that, that, okay, that is going to be what I build my whole bass tone around. So the only thing to think about now is what maybe is missing can I add from the other elements that I've captured? The very next thing that I started thinking about was, let me try blending in the mic tracks that I've captured and seeing if adding that to that dark glass plugin adds anything to the tone or is it fighting and taking away? So what I would do is I would just leave the dark glass plugin in my DAW at, um, at zero on the console view. So that, that tone is the loudest. And then I have two faders with 
each of those microphones that are captured and I have them at negative infinity and I'm slowly just bringing them up. Mm, okay. Seeing what they add. Yeah. Seeing what they add and then just basically stopping wherever I feel like, oh, that sounds pretty good uh, to my mm -hmm. ears. And I don't have the exact answers in front of me right now, but I think it was maybe somewhere along the lines of if that dark glass DI was at zero decibels full scale, then both the microphones were, I think somewhere around negative 12 decibels quieter than that. Gotcha. So quite a, quite a bit more quiet, but I felt that adding the mic tone to the DI or the, I'm sorry, the dark glass plugin on the DI, it was adding some extra characteristic that I couldn't get from only the plugin itself. Yeah. It, yeah. That's, and that's very common. I would say if you listen to episode 33, where I, I did the same type of work on, um, gets miking a guitar uh, cabinet, but I, I found the same type of thing where like I had these different microphone setups and I would, I would, uh, blend two of them. And I found the same type of thing where like most of the tone was coming from one microphone, but adding a second microphone created some phase cancellation, which was actually good. It actually took some of the harshness out of the tone. And so a little went a long way. And I think I was right around the same levels where like one microphone was at zero and the other one was like minus 15 or something, but it's made a big difference. Yeah. So I would say when you're thinking about combining multiple sources together, the two main things to think about are, one, is it adding anything? And if it doesn't add anything, then mute it or get rid of it because yes. there's no reason <laughs> to, to keep tracks that aren't adding anything. There is no right answer, but you just have to have a reason for everything that you do. Don't just blindly say... 52 on the cab is always better. I'm always recording it. It always has to be in there. If we're keeping track, we have three tracks so far in, in this tone that we've built. We have yep. the DI that's gone through that dark glass plug-in, and we've got a Beta 52 on that center 15-inch speaker and also a Shure SM57 on the edge of the dust cap of the top right 10-inch speaker in the cabinet. Got so it. we're keeping good score here. And the only thing I felt like I wanted to add was a bit of guitar-like distortion to the top end of the bass. And I love doing this, and this is in particular like a very cool thing that you can do in hard rock and metal genres that I recommend doing. So all you need to do to do this kind of a thing is basically take a clone of the DI that you already captured and then reroute that or reamp it through either a guitar cab that you have in your house and mic that up or you can do what I did and just send it through a guitar plugin and I send it through the neural DSP archetype Nolly and I think it was the first setting that I pulled up it just sounded awesome and so I just kept it yeah I love when that happens let's play that one As you can hear, that's a very different distortion than we were getting from just the mics on the cab or the dark glass plug-in in and of itself. Yeah, and it's got not, it's got like no low end too, which is like why you maybe wouldn't want to just use that on its own, right? Yeah, yeah, no low end. Part of the no low end though is that I did put a high pass filter sure. on the low end of that. And once again, you have to use your ears basically Capture all of the tone that sounds good, and on that, I think I high-pass filtered right around 230 hertz. Okay. I'm going to play your, uh, your final product here again, Yeah, because it sounds freaking good, and I want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. So yeah, it's a little bit harder to pick out all the individual elements, but maybe you can start hearing, oh, that's where he got that idea to put that, that bass or that 
capture that um, mic and and speaker and plug in and put it all together to make that that kind of a tone. Cool, man. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and um, I'm glad we finally got to do a deep dive. I'm sure it won't be the last time we do this because there's other genres to explore and other techniques. Yes. Uh, but this was a, a great introduction, and hopefully it helps you guys dial in and record awesome bass tones. Yeah, awesome. Happy to do it. And like we always say, guys, make sure that you remember to check yourselves. Before you wreck yourself. All right. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com and you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com and finally join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording just search for DIY recording guys on Facebook thank you so much for listening and for your continued support I'll see you next week.